Hello, my name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. David Ludwig. He is the author of Always Hungry. It's a fantastic new book about how to change your metabolism. And that's what he's going to be talking about today on the show. So knowledgeable. He's a Harvard researcher. Just just such a great guest and I'm excited to have him on the show. Please keep in mind that this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your health, you know, your healthcare practitioner or your physician before engaging in any treatment we suggest today on the show. And if you haven't already, please go take a peek at my new supplement, Liver Rehab. It's available on Amazon. And I created this formula because I couldn't find a formula on the market that I really, really liked. And I wasn't super happy with the ingredients and some of the the formulas out there. So I created this supplement to help your liver optimally detox. Because you guys know I'm really big on detox and you can't detox your body unless your liver is functioning optimally. So it's very, very important to tend to liver health. Our livers are so overloaded today with toxins, with bad diets full of sugar and carbohydrates that we're talking about today on the show. And uh, it's very, very important to give your liver support so that you can be healthy. So that's why I created this supplement. Go check it out at Amazon. Search for Bio Rehab. That's the brand Liver Rehab. Today on the show, Dr. David Ludwig is going to be addressing the underlying drivers of weight gain, which are basically fat cells stuck in calorie storage overdrive. We are going to be in a battle between mind and metabolism that we just can't win. Cutting back on calories won't do it. That doesn't change biology. To change biology, you have to change the kinds of foods that you're eating. And fortunately, researchers like Dr. David Ludwig are discovering what's really behind these cravings and how to turn them off. Today, he joins the show to discuss what the latest studies reveal about beating food addiction and hacking hunger. Dr. David Ludwig, he's an MD and PhD and is a practicing pediatrician and researcher at Boston's Children's Hospital. He holds the rank of Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Professor of Nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Ludwig is founding director of the Optimal Weight for Life, the OWL program at Children's Hospital, one of the country's oldest and largest multidisciplinary clinics for the care of overweight children. David comes on the Low to 110 podcast to discuss food addiction, willpower, and how to hack hunger. Dr. Ludwig, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be with you. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Well, I'm a practicing physician and a researcher based in Boston at Harvard Medical School, Harvard School of Public Health, and Boston Children's Hospital. And I've been looking at ways to think about food independent of calories, beyond the calorie in, calorie out model of weight control, which I hope we can get into, uh, does not work very well. But instead, to see food as so much more, every time we eat, we alter our hormones, metabolism, even the expression of our genes in ways that can take us toward a healthy weight, or weight gain, uh, toward uh, freedom from chronic disease, or a likelihood of heart disease or diabetes. And uh, this is all relating to how 
the metabolic effects of food far beyond the calorie content. Mm-hmm. So how did you become interested in nutrition? Well, I went to medical school uh, and like so many um, medical students, got very little training in nutrition. Um, we tend to focus a lot on drugs and surgery, um, although ironically, diet causes most cases of chronic disease. And, uh, you know, we don't have so much obesity, heart disease, or diabetes because we have a genetic requirement for drugs that have yet to be discovered. Um, so I got interested in this. And um, since I had very little training in nutrition, I didn't start thinking about diet in a conventional way. I started thinking about it as an endocrinologist, which is my clinical focus and my area of research, hormones, how food affects hormones. Mm -hmm. And that leads to some very surprising and alternative ways of thinking about weight control. Yeah. Yeah. I love it that you're, you're a physician that's thinking out of the box, that's thinking more about nutrition. Cause so that's what I think I complain about a lot on the podcast is physicians that are not tending to nutrition and supplementation because these are one of the main underlying root causes of disease. So I applaud you for that. And that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Um, so you wrote a book, Always Hungry. Um, what is the basic message of your book that you, you know, that your message that you're trying to get out to the masses? Yeah, well, the premise is simple but provocative, Uh, although I will argue that it's based on a century of solid research and research we've done uh, in my group for the last 20 years. The premise is that overeating doesn't make you fat, at least not over the long term. The process of getting fat makes you overeat. So let me explain that. Something has triggered our fat cells to hoard too many calories. Uh, and so they feast, but the the rest of the body actually starves. You know, we think of obesity as a state of excess, overabundance. But if those fat cells are growing too fast and hoarding too many calories, to the body, it's a state of starvation. And so the brain does what it's supposed to do. It makes us hungry. It doesn't see the extra calories in the fat cells it sees that the bloodstream doesn't have a steady supply. And so it makes us hungry. That's one part of the brain that lights up. Another part of the brain makes us crave. Um, Very difficult to not eat when those two things are happening. And it makes it even harder by slowing down metabolism, which is a very sensible thing to do if you're really starving. But in the case of fat cells on calorie storage overdrive, it you know, they continue to take the lion's share of what we eat and it leads to progressive weight gain. It doesn't solve the problem. Now, if you just cut back calories, like we're told to do, eat less, you can slow weight gain down or even lose weight temporarily, but your body's going to fight back even harder because it just makes that basic problem worse. Not enough calories in the bloodstream. Let me, let me give you an example. The condition analogy to the condition edema. Many of your viewers will know what edema is. That's where fluid leaks out of the blood vessels and collects in body tissues. The legs might swell greatly. And someone with edema has much too much fluid in the body, maybe 20 pounds extra or more. But they're oftentimes unquenchably thirsty. The brain doesn't see that there's too much water in the body 
it sees that it's not staying in the bloodstream where it's needed. And so if you tell people just don't drink, that's very hard to follow and it still doesn't solve the problem. In the same way, telling people with obesity just don't eat as much is very difficult to do and it's still not addressing the, the problem. If you treat edema so that the blood vessels aren't so leaky and the fluid stays in the bloodstream, then the body sucks up the extra water, releases it, and your thirst is properly controlled. And that's the same in obesity. You treat the fat cells on calorie storage overdrive. Um, they open up. They stop hoarding so much. They calm down. They open up, release those calories back into the body. You feel a flood of energy. Cravings vanish. Metabolism speeds up. And you start to lose weight with your body's cooperation, not with your body kicking and screaming. Yeah, because that we know that willpower doesn't work. I mean, there's definitely some people that can really override their their biology's you know messages and not eat or you know have a very strict caloric diet. But most of us are not able to do that. Can you talk about why willpower doesn't work? We know that body weight, this is well known in the laboratory, body weight is much more about biology than willpower over the long term. Yes, we can either force feed ourselves. So let's take some classic studies, for example, the force feeding studies that have been done for decades. You can take either an experimental animal or humans and you lock them up. Of course, they're volunteers, so they're doing this, you know, uh, with... Uh, uh, agreement, cooperation, but, you know, you give them, you have them consume hundreds or a thousand calories too much a day, and they will gain weight. But what happens? First, they lose all interest in food. Um, their metabolism speeds up in an attempt to get rid of those extra calories, and they actually feel miserable. They're as unhappy as participants in starvation studies are. Once the force feeding protocol ends, the weight comes right back down to where it started. So we know that this, that there seems to be biological control systems that determine what your body weight should be. If you're lean, tends to stay lean. If you're heavy, tends to stay heavy. Although something is causing that set point to keep creeping up year after year throughout the population. So it's not just genes. Something is going on in the environment. We argue that it's mainly aspects of our diet that raise insulin levels too much. Our lifestyle can affect this too. Insulin is the ultimate fat cell fertilizer. When someone with a child with type 1 diabetes, juvenile diabetes, first comes in before they had been diagnosed, they're invariably they've invariably lost weight. There's not enough insulin. They could be eating five, 10,000 calories a day. They're still losing weight. Give them enough insulin and their weight returns to where it's supposed to be or where it was. And then give them too much insulin, which sometimes happens, and they invariably gain weight. You can't store calories without insulin. Now, for those of us who don't have diabetes, your insulin levels don't change based on an injections. They change based on what you eat. The foods that make the most insulin, calorie for calorie, are the processed carbs. White bread, white rice, potato products, fat-free cookies, candy, 
um, cereals, and of course, sugary drinks and the like. These raise insulin levels and program our fat cells into calorie storage overdrive. So they feast, the rest of us starves. And so we have to get at that source of the problem. Otherwise, just cutting back on calories, as you said, creates this battle between mind and metabolism that most of us will lose. Even if you can force yourself not to eat, you're not necessarily getting into the best biological state. For example, when you give animals too much insulin, you just inject them with insulin, you know, they get hungry, overeat, gain weight, get too fat. You can put them on a diet. You keep giving them insulin and put them on a diet and you can prevent them from gaining weight. But they start um, cannibalizing their lean tissue. So they'll develop too much fat and at the expense of their lean tissue, even if you keep them from gaining too much weight. And that's, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the state. It's called, you know, it's the state of um, lean, um, out, lean outside, fat inside. Uh, I think there's a name for this. Uh, I'm blanking on it. Or, a skinny fat person. <laughs> yeah. Fat, um, fat inside, lean outside. Yeah. Or thin outside, fat inside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that means that, you know, we've got these metabolic problems inside, which may or may not reveal themselves in our body weight, but that still very much increase risk for chronic disease, calls us to feel, you know, not great, variable energy um, and uh, cravings, even if it doesn't manifest in, in, in weight gain. And the catch-22 is many people that are overweight, that have metabolic syndrome, eventually develop diabetes, and then they have to inject insulin, and they end up gaining weight as a result of it worsening their condition. Um, I saw this happen with my father. He just kept – and I see it with my aunts and uncles that are on insulin. They keep gaining and gaining and gaining more weight. So you're talking about type 2 diabetes, which is yes. the opposite, a different kind than the type 1 juvenile where you just don't make enough. In type 2 – the basic problem is that the body starts getting resistant to insulin. And so you're, the cells that make insulin in the pancreas can't keep up with that increased demand. And then we try to deal with the situation in the rising blood sugar by giving even more insulin. Although typically, insulin levels are oftentimes already very high. So I want to say that that is sometimes – that is maybe necessary – um, if blood sugar is very high and that can be critical. I'm not asking people to give up their insulin, but over the long term, it's not a good strategy. It's adding fuel to the fire. Yeah. The fire is that we have already high insulin levels. Our fat cells are hoarding too many calories. We're developing chronic inflammation, which is a condition closely linked to insulin resistance. And, um, we just increase insulin levels to try to deal with that. But yes, you can bring blood sugar down at the expense of further weight gain. And so a much better approach is measures that um, reverse this physiology. And we know that can be done sometimes com- with complete resolution of type 2 diabetes if they're instituted within the first couple of years, first few years. Uh, and you can get improvements at any point. Uh, bariatric surgery can cause Total remission, you know, gastric bypass, total remission in type 2 diabetes, um, you know, if it hasn't been a wrong, long for a very long time. 
And there's no reason that diet can't do the same thing, although just calorie restriction doesn't work. Um, but there's a lot of promise with lower carbohydrate diets. Um, what I'm recommending in uh, my book, Always Hungry, is not a very low carbohydrate diet. We start by bringing, getting rid of the processed carbs. Um, but so, and we do that by increasing fat. It's a very lush, um, delicious, you know, fat is very tasty. We used to really love eating it. The French love eating fat. You know, they eat a lot of it and they have lower heart disease rates than we do. So you know, nuts and nut butters, full fat dairy, avocado, real dark chocolate, savory proteins, and natural carbohydrates, the fruits, vegetables, and legumes. In phase two, we in phase one, which is two weeks of the program, we get rid of all grains, potatoes, and added sugar. So that really helps jumpstart a metabolic change. Phase two, your weight comes down to this new set point, and you get to add back in phase two whole kernel grains, old world kind of grain products, uh, steel cut oats, quinoa, buckwheat, wheat berries. And then in phase three, you can add some of the more processed carbohydrates, a little more sugar, based on your body's ability to handle it. Um, and be, again, because this approach works with, not against your body, you eat until satisfied, snack when hungry, and forget calorie counting. So this is the, the program that you lay out in your book. What is the program called? Uh, we call it the Always Hungry Solution. Uh, the book is Always Hungry. We can't call it the Always Hungry Diet because this is actually <laughs> the opposite of that. It's, it's a way to lose weight without having to battle hunger and fatigue by going to the source of the problem, fat cells that are fighting you. you know, they're feasting and we're starving. We've got to retrain our fat cells. And this book is about how to do that. Key is the right diet to lower insulin, calm chronic inflammation. We also bring in some other supports that help fat cells calm down. And the three are quality sleep, stress reduction, stress relief practices, and enjoyable physical activities. And the physical activities aren't so much to burn off calories. You can spend 20 minutes, 20 grueling minutes on a treadmill and replace those calories in less than a minute with a handful of raisins. The benefits of physical activity short of marathon levels is to improve insulin sensitivity and uh, begin to uh, improve chronic inflammation. So why don't you talk a little bit about the research that you're doing that helped you to develop this diet or develop this program rather? Well, this is an area of research I've been, my group has been following. Uh, my research partner is a woman named uh, Dr. Kara Ebeling. So she and I have been doing this work together for years. Um, and we've been looking at, again, how food independent of its calorie content alters our hormones, alters our metabolism, alters the expression of our genes. Um, let me, I can tell you about a couple of studies. Um, in one case, we gave um, young men who were overweight or obese two different milkshakes. Actually, the milkshakes had the same protein, fat, carbohydrate. They were designed to have the same sweetness. One had fast-acting carbohydrate, carbohydrates that's going to digest very quickly. It's called high glycemic index. The other had slow-digesting carbohydrate that doesn't raise blood sugar insulin very much. 
We did this in a double-blind fashion. That's rare in nutrition research. So not, neither the participants nor the investigator who was giving the substance, the milkshakes, knew which was which. And so when we analyzed the data, we found that as expected after the fast-acting milkshake, blood sugar initially surged and insulin went way up. But a couple hours later, blood sugar crashed. That was at four hours. And at that time, people reported feeling hungrier, even though they got the same calories. They felt hungrier. Then we did imaging of the brain with a very advanced technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. And we saw that one area lit up like a laser after the fast-acting milkshake compared to the other one. In fact, it happened in every single subject. We've you know, rarely seen such a strong, consistent effect in our research where everybody does the same thing. Um, and that area has the technical name of the nucleus accumbens. So the nucleus accumbens is the center of the dopamine pleasure and reward system, uh, considered ground zero for the classic addictions of cocaine, heroin, alcohol, and the like, which raises a provocative idea that, yes, we need food to live as opposed to drugs or alcohol, but that these highly processed carbohydrates, due to their effects on our biochemistry, are hijacking the brain reward systems. And that is making it very, very difficult for people to control their cravings. And so again, if, if you're hungry a lot, that's bad enough. If your addiction centers light up, it's game over. And we also did another study to look at the other. So that's our ability to say no to food intake. Another study looked at energy expenditure. We um, gave 21 young adults, again, with high body weight, First, a low-calorie diet to bring their weight down. And, of course, calorie restriction works in the short term. Bring their weight down by 12%. And then we put them for a month at a time on one of three diets, either low-fat, medium, medium to high-fat, like 40%. So low-fat is 20%. Medium was 40%, which is already rather high. Mm-hmm. Like a, That's a typical Mediterranean diet. We're very high-fat diet, like an Atkins, 60% fat. So we put them on these diets for a month at a time in random order. And we found that on the low-fat diet, metabolic rate, their calorie burn, plummeted. 400 calories a day slower, their metabolism was running. On the low-carb diet, there was no fall-off in calorie burn at all from before they lost weight. So they had lost the same 12% or so of their body weight, but their body, their brain didn't even feel like it had been lost weight. It wasn't trying to go into starvation mode. The Mediterranean diet, fifty the 40% diet fat was in the middle. Uh, so this difference between the low fat and the high fat diet and their calorie burn was like an hour of moderately physical, vigorous physical activity without lifting a finger. That difference, if you could put it to use uh, for you, is pretty much the whole obesity epidemic. Yeah. 
And do you think there are some people, I mean, you had the people on the high fat diet that were uh, losing more weight, et cetera. Do you think there are some people that don't do well on a, hat fat, on a high fat diet, say they have genetic reasons or are other metabolic issues where they wouldn't do well on a high fat diet? Yeah. Um, it, yes. Uh, so just to clarify, in that study I just told you about, we locked everybody's body weight into the same. So they all lost the same amount of weight and thus could see the differences in their calorie burn independent of weight change beyond that. But I think, yes, I'm not in our book. The Always Hungry Solution doesn't ask everybody. First of all, it's not an Atkins type, very low carbohydrate diet. I don't think that for most people, you need to go to that extreme. Although some people, for example, with severe metabolic problems like type 2 may reverse the quickest with a very low carbohydrate or even a ketogenic diet. Uh, but I think for most people, that level of restriction isn't necessary. It allows for a much more flexible approach to eating. But I do believe that uh, people differ. So we start everybody on a 50% fat diet that has 25% carbohydrate. So that's pretty high. But you're still eating fruits and vegetables. You're not getting rid of those things. And it's just two weeks, kind of just to jumpstart metabolism. And then we start lowering the fat, trending toward 40%. So most people will wind up 40% fat, 40% carb, about 20% protein. That's a very balanced diet. It's kind of how we ate before the low-fat craze started 40 years ago. But we have tracking tools and symptom checkers that let you see your tipping point. There's some people, and we believe that uh, we can identify them to some degree in advance, the high insulin secretors, who are really going to do best with very, very, you know, keeping those processed carbs pretty low. Yeah. And staying on the high fat side. Other people who are low insulin secretors have much more flexibility and may actually do fine with much more carbohydrate. But again, one size doesn't, isn't going to fit all here. And um, by paying attention to your body, following your symptoms, of food cravings, hunger, energy level, well-being, um, you can find your own tipping point. You reach it and then you pull back a little bit, realizing that the rewards of feeling in control of your hunger and cravings and not having to fight your body are so much greater than the fleeting pleasure of highly processed carbohydrates. Yeah, I love that you said that, that people need to pay attention to their bodies and find what works for them because everyone is so different. And ultimately, you want to use a book as a guide. And I think your book is so well-researched and well-written. It's a fantastic guide. But ultimately, people do have to play around with things, play around with their percentage of their macronutrients to find out what works for them. Because you know, no we, we walk people by the hand there. And, you know, I think the the... It's, you know, the ultimate example of that is a diet book author or anybody's prescribing a calorie restriction, you know, saying you should eat 500 calories less or a thousand. That's forcing the body to lose weight according to dictates, you know, of, a, you know, of a, a, something external to the body. We believe that if you create the right internal conditions, your body determines what rate of weight loss is right for you. For some people, we did a national pilot, 200, about 250 people from around the country. 
Some people lost weight, and again, they're eating as much as they want. They're snacking when hungry, not calorie restriction. Some people still lost weight at a rate of two pounds a week or more. Others were losing weight at just maybe a half pound a week. But without hunger and feeling great, the results are progressive and sustainable. You know, in contrast to a calorie restriction, you know, a popular diet that promises 30 pounds in 30 days, but then what happens? You're starving and struggling for the rest of the year to keep the weight off. So we sort of outsourced uh, control of our body to others, whereas if we feed our body right, it will figure out, it will automatically move itself toward optimal health. That's how it's been designed. What is your opinion of intermittent fasting? Because uh, it's very, very popular today, and there's even books that say do 500 calories one time a week or two days a week or don't eat for half the day. Or What do you think of intermittent fasting? You know, I think that there are some interesting potential benefits from fasting and, um, you know, the, the argument is that humans evolved during food unpredictability, although, frankly, you know, many societies and even hunter-gatherers had plenty of food most of the time. It's not like they were eating hand-to-mouth. Humans were really successful hunter-gatherers. Um, but yes, there were, of course, times without food, and we would have gone into a fasting physiology, made ketones, and that could be very good for the brain and body. The problem is, I think, you know, the pro- as I view it, the fundamental problem right now is we are actually in a starvation state. The body doesn't have enough calories in the right place in the bloodstream. And that's why we're hungry. So then you tell people like that, well, just stop eating. That's tough. Now, if you change the quality of what you're eating, then it becomes much easier to fast. But I think that's, you know, advanced. That's an advanced degree. We've got to start out, you know, in grade school and high school for most people by putting an end to the starvation that's happening inside of their bodies. And the best way to do that is, you know, we tell people, don't starve yourself. Eat as much as you want. Don't stuff yourself. Listen to your body. But eat. We, phase one is three meals and two snacks a day of lush, high, rich, satisfying, savory foods. And you eat until you're satisfied. And you still start losing weight because it turns off the starvation. Now, once people, you know, feel like they've mastered that um, and the diet quality is really high, then you can play with um, intermittent fasting on top of that. But again, if you start off with intermittent fasting, you may make a bad situation worse. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. You can't go from the sad, you know, standard American diet, eating the carb-rich diet to fasting because i think a lot of people they get the blood sugar drop and then they can't overcompensate with eating everything in sight they completely lose their willpower um so i i agree with you you have to start eating a healthier diet higher fat diet and then maybe play around with that and see if it works for you i don't think it works for everyone 
So you said there's some people that, uh, you know, don't release insulin so well from the pancreas and others, uh, that, you know, release it very readily. Um, can you account for some of the differences, uh, um, in why that's the case? I mean, yeah, certainly there's genetic reasons, but do you do, do you account for any toxicity levels that, uh, prevent insulin release from the pancreas or any mineral or nutrient deficiencies that inhibit that? Well, there's undoubtedly many, you know, micronutrient and other nutrient and phytochemical deficiencies can affect insulin dynamics, glucose control in many ways, at the beta cells that make insulin and in the target cells that affect insulin resistance. Um, this is a whole foods approach. So uh, I think some supplementation is prudent, but not as an alternative to a whole foods approach, which is going to have many more things than any supplement can ever. And that's the foundations there. And, uh, you know, I think that is um, 90% of it for most people. Although I think that if you're in a northern latitude and not getting much sunlight, some vitamin D supplementation is helpful. If you're not eating much fish, a uh, long chain omega-3 supplement is good. If you're not eating fermented foods, um, then I think a probiotic. I think those are the those are the three top of the line. And then there are others who argue that you know the soils that we're growing our foods in are depleted and aren't containing as many. You know, um, so there may be a role for additional supplements beyond that, but I think that's secondary. And the primary focus of the book is these foundations of good nutrition, full, uh, a whole foods diet is going to provide so much more and so many more combinations than can ever be distilled into a pill. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how many meals do you think people should eat per day? I know you said in your book that you start people out with three meals per day and two snacks. Um, but evolutionary wise, you know, a lot of the, the population ate one or two meals per day. Do you, um, you know, have any thoughts on, you know, do, you know, eating the way that man used to eat, uh, many, many, you know, for the millennia, uh, do you have any comments on that? You know, man and woman, um, ate so many different ways based on culture, location, food availability, season, you know, if the berries were in season, like if you were, um, an Inuit in the far north, most of the year you would have been eating just fat and protein, you know, um, fish, caribou, maybe, you know, whale or whatever. And then the berries would come in in August and September and you would gorge on, on that. Um, you know, so there's, I don't know that we can come up with an optimal meal pattern based on considering our uh, Paleolithic ancestors, but uh, I think it's important to start by addressing the fundamental problem in weight gain and obesity, which is that our body is actually starving. Yeah, the fat cells are feasting, but there aren't enough calories in circulation for the rest of the body. So we've got to eat the right foods and start eating regularly. That lets hormones calm down and tells the brain, "Wait a second, there's enough. You don't have to." Protect me this way, holding on to every calorie. You can relax. You can let those calories start to flow out of the body because there is an abundance. And that, I think, uh, 
we do we recommend starting by three meals and two snacks a day. Okay. But let your body decide. If you're not hungry, if you really don't want a snack, if your body's very quickly trying to get rid of calories, you'll just not be interested in so much food. So you just have a very light meal. But we want people not to skip meals for the first two weeks. Yeah. After that, then you can begin to individualize. And, you know, I, um, you know, there are days where I do like to not eat three meals. And, uh, but I don't have hunger when I do it because I feel like, you know, I, my metabolism is in a much better state than it was 20 years ago when I was eating a more standard conventional low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. Yeah, I found that as well. When I began eating much, much healthier, um, I just needed, over time, I needed less food. So today I only need about two meals per day, maybe a snack. Um, but I'm surprised at how little food I need. Uh, but I do a lot of supplementation as well. So I get lots of nutrients. Uh, so what are your top tips for kicking food cravings? Well, I think the just one, really, it's which is to feed your fat cells well. Once we reprogram fat cells to calm down and release their calories back into the body, cravings vanish. In our national pilot, people reported, and these stories are through the book, uh, they're authentic, we didn't make anything up, you know, just what they said, um, reported that cravings tended to vanish before the first pound was shed. That was a quite a consistent experience among our pilot participants. Now think, and I think these cravings take care of themselves and it automatically guides us to eating properly. Let's do a little thought experiment. Let's think of a few different things that one could binge on, one might crave or binge on. Um, highly processed carbohydrates or bread. Um, to get 400 calories, maybe that would be five slices or so. So five slices of bread. Um, Another thing you could do is eat um, three big bowls of berries, big, big bowls of berries. Um, that's slow-acting carbohydrate. A fat you could binge on would be like butter. You know, people, a lot of people think butter is very tasty. Um, so a half stick of butter or five packages of beef jerky without the sugar. Okay, so... Um, Many people think berries are very tasty. Butter, if you said what's tastier, bread or butter, people would mostly say butter. But what's going to happen if you try to binge on just butter? You know, the first bite might taste kind of okay. Second bite, this is getting a little weird. Third bite, you're getting sick to your stomach. Why is that? Because you can't binge unless you've got processed carbs that raise your insulin levels. You binge on the bread, it doesn't taste so good, but your blood sugar surges, crashes, and you want more a few hours later. You binge on the butter. If you could force yourself to eat 400 calories of butter, you ain't going to be binging on anything for a while. <laughs> yeah. Same for beef jerky and same for the berries. So um, it's we're binging not because we have will, poor willpower, and we're not doing it because the food is so tasty. Things that people binge on are not inherently so tasty. We're doing it because our body is driving us to do it. And just to try to control that with willpower is a losing proposition. Control it biologically, that's fighting fire with fire. Then you're in control. Yeah. 
So why don't you talk about what your main message is in your book, kind of just a, a, summit, a summation of sure. the, well, the well, main message. Here we go. I can show, I'll just show the cover. Okay, there it is. Um, just out last week, always hungry. And uh, so, you know, we, again, it's, it's a meal plan, three-phase meal plan to lower insulin, calm chronic inflammation. So high-fat diet, nuts, nut butters, full-fat dairy, real chocolate, proteins, either vegetarian or meat options. We give both. Um, natural carbohydrates, then we slowly add back more processed carbohydrates. We combine that with um, attention to quality sleep. We walk people through creation of a sleep sanctuary in their bedroom so that we can um, deal with the overstimulation that's causing us to stay on all the time, but that also takes a toll on our fat cells. Quality sleep, stress relief, and then enjoyable physical activities. Uh, one, one of them is the passaggiata which is an Italian habit of going for a walk after dinner where you not try to burn off calories, but you socialize. You go out, you know, you meet people in the community, you tone up, you tune up your metabolism, you feel good. That's really all we're talking about. Yes, it's perfectly fine to do more visit physical, vigorous workouts, but this daily practice of quality sleep, stress relief, enjoyable physical activities, the right approach to diet, you retrain, you reprogram your fat cells to work with you. Well, I have a question I like to ask all of my guests. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Um, I mean, you know, in broad terms, it's obviously diet-related diseases. Um, I mean, in the developed world, you know, the developing world still has a lot of Undernutrition, starvation, we can't forget that, um, infectious illness. Um, and so that, that's, but in the developed world and increasingly in developing countries, obesity, diseases of so-called overnutrition, which I'm arguing is actually starvation inside the body, um, diet-related diseases, they've surpassed smoking as the number one cause of preventable chronic disease. Um, you know, we predicted in 2005 in the New England Journal of Medicine that life expectancy will begin to decline in this country in the next couple, in the next few decades, unless we do something about obesity beginning with children. And we're already starting to see a stalling of life expectancy, in, especially in the areas with the highest obesity prevalence in the country. Um, you know, this is a, in the epilogue of the book, I argue this is a matter of national security. You know, if we're spending more and more money trying to manage chronic diseases, medicines for to lower blood sugar, to lower blood pressure, to lower blood cholesterol, to keep our blood from clotting excessively, to manage depression, impotence, um, all of these other consequences of an unhealthful diet. All the money is going there. There's no money left for, you know, the nice things in life, for for, for investing in our social infrastructure, for keeping, you know, for education, for these things. And that's fueling political debate in Washington. And it's probably one reason driving 
such fierce polarization of the parties. You know, if we could address diet-related disease, we'd have so much extra money. The Democrats could have social spending. The Republicans could have a balanced budget. And we'd have a chance to actually detoxify the political environment in Washington. Yeah, I, I wonder the same thing. If our future medical crises and the amount of money we're going to have to spend on medical care is going to hurt our position as, you know, being leaders and, um, you know, financial leaders and uh, entrepreneurial leaders, et cetera, et cetera, because we're, because we're drowning in national debt because of our health crisis. And so why don't you talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, in the United States, you know, two thirds of the population is obese, but we're finding, you know, because of our diet and we're finding in other countries in India and China, et cetera, in the, uh, the large cities where they're serving fast food, more and more of the upper and middle classes are, are eating fast food or have access to it. They're having um, a huge problem with uh, developing the same de- diseases that are so rampant in the United States. When people in other countries are moving away from their traditional diets, their healthy diets of uh, meat and vegetables and uh, rice, etc., um, in rural China or rural India, and now they're you know suffering from the same diseases. In the you know, the pe- well, the peasants in China ate a lot of white rice. That's a processed carbohydrate, and they didn't get obesity or diabetes, but they were working 14 hours in the field, um, and that white rice wasn't making them feel very good, but it was keeping them alive. They moved to the cities, which is happening now, bringing their highly processed carbohydrate diet, but leaving behind all of that physical activity, and uh, rates of obesity and diabetes are skyrocketing. One recent estimate suggested that they're maybe close to a half a billion people in China with diabetes or prediabetes, like just half the country. Uh, It's just how do you get your mind around that kind of an estimate? Um, So we have uh, a true international crisis, diet-related disease. We have to bring back sanity. Uh, We're going to be, we're just going to be eating ourselves to death here. Yeah. Yeah. You have to eat the diet that's based on your level of physical activity and, you know, where your, your body is using that up, you know, like athletes or people, you said, are working out in the field, they can handle that high level of carbohydrate. But if in the absence of that, it, it still may not be, it still may not be ideal for them. I mean, there's some very interesting work about lowering carbohydrates for optimal fitness. You know, there are, there are ultra marathon runners who can do it with no carbohydrate. You're just on a ketogenic diet. Now, I'm not re- recommending that, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, we don't need processed carbohydrates at all. Um, yeah. We do need grains because we can't support the world's population without grains, but it can be in a much less processed state, slower digesting with many more nutrients, more fiber and the like. Dr. Ludwin, thank you so much for your insight. I know the, the listeners are going to enjoy that so much. I learned a lot myself. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you, find your website and your book? Sure. Well, great talking to you. Great questions. And uh, so the book is uh, available widely now. It just came out last week. Uh, website is doctor, as in drdavidludwig.com. So that's drdavidludwig.com. 
And, um, you know, the book is now available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Costco, Sam Club, and uh, your local bookstore. Is there anything else you want the listeners to know that perhaps we didn't touch on? Uh, well, I would say my mantra is, uh, you know, kind of the Michael Pollan-esque fashion. Forget calories, focus on food quality, and let your body do the rest. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Dr. Medway. Really appreciate that. Great talking to you. And listeners, if you want to learn more about me, you can go to live2110.com and learn all about my healing and detox program on mineralpower.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.